Lord, we ask for your help this morning as we study your word and as we seek to hear from you. And we, Lord, come to you humbling ourselves, asking, Lord, that you would have your way with us, that you would um, point out any sin that we are um, rooted in. And Lord, give us grace and, and wisdom to see it and to um, be changed as a result of the gospel, exposing it, showing it, and giving us the, the right way out. Lord, help me as your messenger simply to flesh out your text in a way that will reflect your truth and would impact the hearts of believers that are here today. Uh, we ask for your strength. Uh, we anticipate your grace. And uh, Lord, we look forward to the, the change and the peace that comes as a result of it. We ask this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, we are glad that you're here, and we work our way typically through a book of the Bible. Um, beginning on Easter, we started the, the Gospel of Mark. It's always exciting to get back into one of the Gospels, and uh, so you're not too far behind jumping into the story, and i um, glad to have you with us. This morning, we want to look then at, at this passage and uh, consider, as the title says, a question of authority. Now, what have you been amazed at recently? I want to begin by asking that question. This week, I read something that um, I was amazed at. It was more kind of, a, of acute amazement, but I thought it was pretty, uh, it was pretty amazing that a seven-year-old boy would forge a letter from his teacher to his parents that says this, Dear Parents, Nathan has been doing good in all his classes, except for video game class. If he does not stay up all night playing video games, he will get kicked out of school. You know what? I'm, I'm with him there, right? I mean, that's, not, that's like the kids, you know, just, just fill in the blank of what it is you want to do, right? That's, but it's pretty amazing that how at seven years old you can be um, so creative and um, uh, desiring to be deceptive too, right? I'm also amazed at things like, you know, the, the birth of a child. Uh, just rejoice over, uh, over the children that God is giving us here at Gateway and the news of um, the used little one. Uh, I'm amazed at how small the world is. Uh, used to be that you'd have to wait uh, months to find out what happened on the other side of the world, and today you can find out just in, in, in the space of you know, a few seconds or minutes. I'm amazed at how beautiful the body of Christ is around the world. I, I'm always stunned at the fact that I've been to various places, and that's a privilege I consider that God has given me, but you can walk into a church in Ukraine and Russia and Bolivia and different places, and, and the, the, the nationality of the people there is, is present. It's part of the culture, but the, the real unity is the body of Christ. And there's something amazing about that reality. I'm amazed also at... Uh, the fact that so many people travel in one day. If you ever fly on planes through airports, um, you, you just you sit there and you're like, where are all these people going? I mean, do they really need to go there? And of course, you're one of them, right? And you're saying, yeah, I need to go there. But it's just amazing how many people travel. Um, I'm amazed at how God sustains us during times of trial. I think we've experienced a lot of that in, the, in our church. Last week, uh, we had some testimony to that end, and uh, I think you guys reflected similar attitudes and, and mindfulness of, of the fact that God 
sustains us during those times of trial. It really is amazing that, that he is always with us. Uh, and he is, he is working uh, with our good and his purposes in mind. I'm also amazed at God's providence uh, that is always at work in the lives of his people in his church. And just the way he, he works his will, the way he, he accomplishes his purposes and brings things about. And, and we, you're just kind of stunned that this is, this is what he chose to do and, and this is how he, he comes through or this is how he answers a prayer. Um, it's always amazing how God works in that way. When I was a kid, um, I had uh, an uncle by the name of Joel. Now, he wasn't really my uncle, but he was one of those people that you call uncle, right? Because he was a friend of the family. And, and I was always amazed because he could make coins disappear in his arm. You probably have an uncle that did this too. And he would sit there and he would make coins disappear and he'd do it again and over and over again. And, and I, just, I would watch and watch and watch. And I just could not figure out what it was. And then all of a sudden, it clicked. And I figured it out. And I took on the mantle of putting coins in my arm. And I'm amazed that um, I can fool people now by putting coins in my arm. I've actually, some gullible people, I've actually put like, like dinner spoons in my arm, TV remotes in my arm, and then actually taken them out. And they're like, how in the world did you do that? Now, don't ask me to show you that because I don't want to give away my secrets. But, but we, can, we can amaze one another. Now, what I want you to notice, though, here, as, as we come to this passage, is that there's, there's a word that is used twice in this text, and it's translated in the, in the ESV, astonished. And it's also the idea of amazement. The, the, the idea is that they're amazed at what they're experiencing, what they're hearing, what they are seeing. And in particular, they're amazed at the preaching or teaching of Jesus, and they're also amazed at his demonstration of power while he is there present ministering in Capernaum. And so this idea of, of amaze, it means to, to strike a person out of his senses by some feeling such as fear or wonder or even joy. So these people are amazed at their encounter with Jesus here at the synagogue. And so what, what Mark is wanting to really press on us, he's calling on his readers and remember, his initial readers were those in Rome, and he's trying to press home who Jesus is, but he wants them to understand not just who he is in, in, in name, but who he is actually. And he's pressing home for them to be amazed that uh, at the authority of Jesus, and uh, as he preaches in the synagogue and exercises his power over the demonic world. He wants them to be amazed. Now, you're going to see this word a number of times in the book of Mark. But here we begin by this, this, this response by the people. They're, they're just utterly amazed. They're utterly astonished at what they have experienced in this time in the synagogue, in, in somewhat of, a, uh, of an out-of-the-place village called Capernaum. Now, this word amazed screams at us from this passage like the, the morning slap of a cold shower, and it says, pay attention to what is amazing the crowd. It's saying to us, don't miss the importance of this text. So just the way that, 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 that Mark is recording 
and, and unfolding these events and, and, and giving us the picture of how these people respond is telling us this is something that we need to pay attention to. They are literally blown away by the repeating or re- repeated activity of his preaching and his power in their presence. Now, all this is taking place in a synagogue in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on the, on the, on the, the Sea of Galilee, uh, the, the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you can actually go there today. One of the difficulties today, those, they've, they've actually managed the water, and so the water, uh, the water levels are different than they were during the time of Christ. So it kind of has a little different picture to it. But you can go there, and you can actually go to um, a, a synagogue that's built on what they believe was the original location of this particular synagogue. Now, what we have to understand here is that those who were present in the synagogue were the four now disciples that Jesus had called to himself, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as well as the rank and file of Capernaum, because this is where they would gather in the synagogue. And this is kind of like a, a leveling place where it doesn't matter whether you're one of the rich people in town or you're one of the poorer people in town. If you were a Jew, you went to the synagogue. This is where the law was taught. So you, you had in the synagogue uh, fishermen, merchants, craftsmen, laborers, and their wives, regardless of their place in society. And the synagogue uh, was where the teaching of the law took place. If you wanted to actually worship, if you want to think of it in those terms, you would go to the temple. The synagogue primarily was a place of instruction. It was a place of, of training. And what would typically happen is that different people would have opportunity to stand up and to, to read the, the, the word, of God, word of God and actually to make comments about that. And so the, 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 the synagogue ruler would call upon any competent person to give an address or to give an, an exposition. So Jesus was called on to speak. They didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> they didn't realize who they were calling on. But here's Jesus, and he begins to teach in the synagogue. So this is the setting. This is, this is the, the, the place where this authority now is going to be revealed for us. So first of all, let's consider the fact that they are amazed at his teaching. Verse 22, and they were astonished or amazed at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So, right at the outset, why is the congregation so amazed at his teaching? Well, because unlike the scribes, he was teaching with authority. So let's just unpack that a little bit, and let's think through what Mark is revealing and why they're responding the way they are. Now, let's think about the teaching of the scribes. The scribes, typically, when they taught, they would basically say, well, such and such... um, Rabbi says, and if you don't like what he says, well, maybe um, Rabbi Gamaliel says something, and if you don't like him, maybe Rabbi Hillel says something, and if you don't like him, then maybe there's another rabbi that you can listen to. And they, they basically would, would read the scripture, and they would simply quote authorities from their historical tradition. Now, there's nothing wrong with quoting people who have spent time studying the word of God and coming to certain conclusions. But they were simply dissertations of second-hand theology that were empty of passion, empty of conviction. It was basically, here's what the tradition of our men teach. So it isn't that quoting the others is a bad thing. God has given us counselors. We should be thankful for that. And oftentimes you'll hear me quote from people who are both alive and dead. 
because it reinforces the teaching of God's word. But we have to recognize that it is God's word, ultimately, that is the authority, right? So Jesus' teaching, though, was different than the scribes. His teaching was teaching with authority. So we think about the teaching of Jesus here. Uh, As we're told here, it was with authority. He actually believed what he was saying. His life backed it up. But this was also a teaching that was not just based on the tradition of men. It was a teaching that was part of the revelation from God. He recognized the word of God for what it was. And his style typically went like this. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And so the You've heard that it was said, he's referring to all the people that are quoting these different things and their interpretations of things, but he's saying, no, 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 let me tell you what the interpretation actually is. This is what it is. And he's saying that in such a way that he is speaking with authority. So he preached God's word. He didn't teach simply about it. He preached it. He explained it simply and clearly, and then he pressed it into the hearts of those believers that were present. And he did this continually, and the people were continually blown away. Now, there's a caution here, friends. For it's possible that what Jesus found in the synagogue is much like what he would find in coming to a church like Gateway. Let me ask this question this way. If Jesus came to Gateway... What authorities would he find the people of Gateway leaning on? What would they be turning to? And this is where we have to look at the preaching and teaching today. We have to consider what it looks like today as as the, the ministry of the church continues on. Now, after the gospel, after Christ has gone to the cross, after the church has been established, what is the basis of our instruction? What is the basis of our counsel? How do we motivate people? How do we grow people? How do we train people? Well, one of the things that we need to consider here is that there are some false authorities out there. And we need to be on the lookout for those false authorities. And so I just reflected a little bit about some of the false authorities that happen to be present and could be present in a church like this. All right, and I have, I don't know, seven or eight of them. We won't highlight all of them. But let's just begin with the first one that came to mind. That was psychology. Now, psychology as a discipline is a study of how people behave, what they do, what habits they have. And from that perspective, psychology has, has benefited society greatly. It's good to study. It's good to see how people, how people behave. But where psychology falls flat is when it tries to answer the reason why. It can't give you the reason why. It can give you some suggestions, some speculations, some hypothesis, but it cannot give you the reason why people act and behave the way that they do. Or if they try, it's a faulty reason. But when we open the pages of God's word, we see case study after case study after case study of this is how people behave. But it always goes back to one thing. It always goes back to sin in the heart of a person, rebellion in the heart of a person against God versus a willingness to live submissively to Christ as their authority over their lives. Now, of course, society will listen to that and they'll say, well, that's really simplistic. I mean, that, that just really is, is unsophisticated. That's foolish thinking. And part of that's because they don't want to acknowledge Christ as king or submit to what he has revealed in his word. 
So that's psychology. That could be an authority that comes in. Another one would be philosophy. The attempt to answer the big questions of the universe. And they're typically understood in four categories. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? All right. What, what is, what is, where am I going? What is the, the purpose of life? Well, turning your Bibles to Romans 11.36. I mean, these philosophers have thought about these questions for years. And they've come to some really unusual ideas. Now, the Apostle Paul, in writing the book, his letter to the Romans, spends the first half of his book dealing with theology. He's laying out the gospel. He's laying out what God says about the gospel and how it unfolds and what it looks like. And he finishes up that whole dissertation with this little section of verse 36. And I just want you to notice what he says. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him, where did I come from? For through him, uh, what am I doing here? Living my life. Through him, in Christ. To him, where am I going? Everyone's going to bow the knee before God one day. All right? And then to him be glory forever. What's the purpose of life? To glorify God. There you have it in one verse. Those four major questions answered by the Apostle Paul as he wraps up his thinking to his letter to the Roman people. Now, friends, the point here is this, that that Scripture answers these questions. Just like it has an answer for psychology, it has an answer for philosophy. Another authority that you could bring to the context here, false authority, would be science. Something that science um, comes as an ugly monster to the Bible and to the claims of Scripture, but that just is not the case. Science is a friend of Scripture. Even as scientists seek to disprove God's word, it is the word that eventually proves to be right. Now, today, you'll listen to secular thinking and even conservative secular thinking, and one of the things you'll hear them say is, like, well, we know that everyone used to believe that the world was flat. And the answer to that is, actually, you don't know that. Actually, that is a myth that has been created to smack against people who hold to the truth of God's word. To say they're crazy people because they used to believe that the world was flat. In fact, the early church fathers never thought that. In fact, a serious student of the word of God wouldn't say that. Why? Because in Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 21 through 22, it tells us that God sits above the circle of the earth. So when someone comes to you and says, well, Christians, all they all used to believe that the the earth was flat. It's like, no. That's not true. That's false information that has been used to prop up as an argument against the the simpletons of Christianity. It's not true. Anyone making that claim has not actually taken time to read the Bible themselves. But here's the point. The Bible and science are friends. They have to be. And you'll find over and over and over that is the truth. Another one is politics. And maybe, maybe politics isn't the best word, but maybe it's more you know, philosophical movements that come under the umbrella of politics. So it could be you know, you know, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party. It doesn't really matter. Those just happen to be parties in our country. But hear this, friends. In the economy of Scripture, there are only two parties. 
There's darkness and there's light. There's godly, there's ungodly. There are the blind and there are those who see clearly. This is how God has revealed things for us. And so I as a pastor, or we who are teachers in the church, we must be careful that it is the authority of Scripture that is driving our preaching, especially in the context of an election year. We want to be careful that we're not trying to somehow manipulate you know, some ideology that's blowing through our, our American culture. We want, the culture we want to see take place comes as a result of the preaching of the Word of God among the context of the people that are present. It's God's kingdom we're about. That's what we want to focus on. Not the politics of the day. We have a responsibility as citizens of this country to do what we desire to do or what we think we should do to influence those things, but we have a responsibility before God to affect the kingdom for his glory. That's far more a greater calling. Okay? How about the authority of, of self? What do you mean by that? Well, what I want to do. What I expect of others. What suits my needs. Right? You ever heard that before? Of course you have. You probably think that. And this is something we wrestle with, right? Now, John F. Kennedy is noted for saying these words. Ask not what your country can do for you. How does it finish? Ask, right, ask what you can do for your country. Um, somehow I don't hear that being said too much anymore. Um, in fact, I don't know that too many people really care that much about that statement or doing something for your country. They're far more concerned and consumed with what they want to do with their life for their own benefit. It's all about me. It doesn't really matter so much about, about fellow man. But the, the word of God comes and, and smacks at that and says, you have a responsibility to a community. You have a responsibility to a people. You have a responsibility to God. And by virtue of your responsibility to God, you flesh that out by living for his glory, by using your life to serve others. And I put a, a few more down there. Another authority would be feelings. You know, my feelings are the most important thing. And we're seeing that rise up, aren't we, today? It's my feelings that matter. You made me feel uncomfortable. Now, maybe they did. But your feelings are not an excuse for bad behavior. Your feelings do not rule. All right? And so in, in Scripture, feelings are always the fruit or the, the tail end of truth. Truth comes first, which then results in feelings that, that are a reflection of that truth. Think of a train. The feelings are the, are the caboose. It's the truth that is the engine that's driving everything else. So it's not that feelings are unimportant. It's that truth is important, and the feelings are the result of that truth. Bad truth, bad feelings. So the bad truth, it's all about me. I'm number one. I need to think about what I need to do. Well, it's going to produce feelings then, right? But if truth is God is sitting on his throne, he is my savior, he's my master, he's my Lord, he dictates what I should do, I need to submit to him, feelings are going to come as a result of that truth being present in your life. So the, the point I'm trying to make here is that there are authorities that influence how we think and how we come, even to the word of God, even as part of a church. A couple more, just really briefly, tradition. You know, this is how we've always done it. And then one more after that, 
uh, would simply be reason. And sometimes that is brought up uh, just to challenge. Now, we need to be on the lookout for these false authorities. But Jesus, remember, when Jesus came, how did he come? He came speaking with authority. That's the authority that you want to have. And the authority that he comes speaking is he comes speaking the word of God. He's saying, this is what the word of God says. Now let me tell you what it means, and let me show you how you live that out. And these people are sitting there like, we have not heard this kind of stuff before. We go, we've been instructed in the law, but when, when Jesus gets up, he just, he, it's, it's alive. This, this word has, has, has some power to it. Well, of course, that's the way it should be. The word of God is a living, breathing book. And that's how Jesus preached it. That's how he, he taught it. Now, Mark wants us to, uh, wants to show us that the Son of God has authority over demons And as we continue on through Mark, he'll see over disease, over sin, over the Sabbath, over law, over nature. Jesus has authority. Jesus is the authority. He has the right to speak and to teach and to proclaim and to counteract the false thinking of that culture. But we must be careful of the authorities that we allow to come in and somehow cast a shadow over the truth. But there's a second, I want to say, caution or issue that flows out of this, and that is this. I think, I think we can say that there's a need for us to grow beyond secondhand theology. Now, what do I mean by that? Listen, when someone becomes a new believer, they need people to help walk them through what Scripture says to give them the the framework, to give them the parameter, to give them the idea of how the Word of God fits together and and where you find different genres or or what the Bible says about the nature of Jesus Christ and the nature of the Trinity and what does it look like to serve in the church, just all sorts of things. And so you teach basic doctrine uh, to those who are young believers. But the point is you don't just want them to stay there. The point of that is to say, here's the truth. But with teaching them the truth, you also want them now to begin to mine the word of God so that the truth that you have been teaching them actually becomes theirs, that they own it. So secondhand theology is something that we should use in the context of church, but we shouldn't settle for it. We all lean on people. That's why sometimes I'll get a phone call or an email from you and say, Pastor Rod, I'm reading this passage of Scripture. I'm not exactly sure what it means. What you're saying is, Pastor Rod, we want to lean on you. And I'm going to say, well, you know what? It could be this, it could be this, and here's a good book to read or something like that. I'm giving you some direction. That's okay. That's perfectly all right. But the goal is then for you to no longer lean on someone else like me, but to be able to be a student of the Word of God yourself. So that you're growing and you're changing as a result of what you're seeing the Word of God actually say. So if our lives are going to be real, if we're going to have an impact in the world around us, we need to move from the the, the crutch of secondhand theology, a rightful crutch in its beginning stages, to a personal conviction and passion about what Jesus has said. Christ's authority must become part of us. Let's say it this way. We may possess the message, but the message must possess us. So it's moving from from one to the other to possess the message and the message ultimately possessing us. And so this is why, friends, in our mission statement, 
it says that we desire to be a congregation that is actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not just saying we are a group of people that just believe this. There it is. We just believe it. That's all we need to know. We just believe it. No, we're actively committed to knowing, applying it. That the, the impact there is that we are growing, that there's movement going on here. There's development. There's maturity taking place. That's why we gather for home groups to discuss the last two texts um, in a more personal and practical way, thinking about real-life applications. That's why the men and the, and the women in their various ministries take time to, to study the, the Word of God or some books that will help us understand who we are flowing out of the Word of God. That's why we host the Charles Simeon Trust training for both men and women in our church because we want people to know how to handle the Word of God carefully. And that's why we emphasize the Cornerstone class with the self-confrontational manual. Because we believe that God has spoken. But we also believe that every believer has the freedom and the right to embrace that word and to grow in that word. You don't have to go through a pastor. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My job is not to be some some conduit for you to get to God. My job is to help you on your own to have that relationship with God. Okay? So all of these tools are here to help us then not simply stay at secondhand theology, but to grow and to make it our own. This is a lifelong pursuit. But sadly, I think there are many people in the context of the American church, in one sense, they've got their ticket to heaven. They've signed on the dotted line, this is what we believe, and it just kind of stays static. And you ask them questions, ah, well, I, they don't know. And they don't know where to know. And I just want to encourage you, just make it your goal just to, to, to be on this, this, this path of growing toward being mature in Christ, having the ability to handle the Word of God carefully. Take advantage of, of what we are providing for you. So we believe that Christ has spoken. We believe that he has the authority to speak into our lives and to change us. We, we believe that we need counsel and wisdom and direction from on high. So we want to possess the message, but we want the message to possess us. And they're amazed because Jesus is speaking with authority. Secondly, they're amazed at his power. They're amazed at his power. Now Jesus is in the synagogue and he's quite rudely interrupted. And I was thinking about this. We've We've had our fair share of interruptions, haven't we? Um, birds walking on the roof at key times in a sermon. Um, I think they were ravens. They're evil creatures, right? Sent as, yes. Um, flies buzzing around, taking our attention away from what we should be giving our attention to. At times, we've had people coming on campus that have tried to cause a ruckus, and things are happening in the back or on the side, and here we are going on with, with, uh, with the service. Um, uh, people just walking in off the street, um, not sure exactly what they're going to do, 
and that's fine. We want to welcome people here, but you just sometimes you know you're like, okay, this is unusual, this is strange. But you, all right, these these could be interruptions. And of course, there's the kids that are crying, and there's the people that spill their drinks, or there's the keys that fall to the ground, and all that kind of stuff. Those are all church is going to have interruptions. And let me just say this on a practical level: don't be so easily put out by distractions and interruptions, learn to just to pursue your, your, your time with God in the context of church, recognizing that things like that will happen. You know, some people are so, you know, I, I just, I can't worship, I can't, I can't focus because, you know, someone made a noise over here and someone made a noise over there. I realize that times these things happen. The antidote to that is go to the mission field. And you will understand what interruptions are actually like. I mean, what, think about it. If I'm preaching to you and there's kids in the audience and, and I'm speaking, and you have two little kittens come walking in front in church, just walking all over the place. You think they're really going to be paying attention to you? If I'm preaching, or you're teaching, you're giving a testimony, you learn just to deal with things. Sometimes we're a little bit too touchy on some things. Now, I understand. You, you, we want to do things well. We want to do what we can to remove unnecessary distractions, but there are distractions, and there are, are interruptions. Now, what happens here, though, is not a cell phone that went off. This is not a hacking cough, but something far more confrontational. Now, who or what interrupted Jesus? Verse 23. It says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And it's worth noting here that both pagans and Jews had a strong belief in demons and devils. German scholar Adolf von Harnack says this, the whole world and the circum- circumambient atmosphere were filled with devils. Not, not merely idolatry, but every phase and form of life was ruled by them. They sat on thrones, they hovered around cradles, the earth was literally a hell. So there's this There's this mysticism that's going on, even among Jews and pagans, as to the presence and the activity of demons. Now, where do these demons come from? From a Jewish perspective, many Jews uh, got their understanding of demons from Genesis 6, 1 through 8, where the Nephilim are mentioned. And it would go something like this. There were two angels who forsook God and came to the earth because they were attracted by the beauty of mortal women. Their names were Asahel and uh, Shemakshai. One of them returned to God, the other remained on earth and gratified his lust, and the demons are the children that he fathered and their children. So this is, this is the interpretation, the explanation for demons by many in the, in the Jewish world. And so according to Jewish belief, not scripture, demons could eat and drink and have children. Therefore, there are many of them, hundreds of thousands of them. They lived in unclean places, places like tombs. They were especially dangerous to a lonely traveler, a a woman in childbirth, children who were out after dark. Again, this is not because Scripture says this, but this is what they believed, okay? They believed that there was a demon of blindness, of leprosy, of, of heart disease, Now the point isn't that we should believe this, but that the people in the New Testament did. Okay? That's the point here. This is their context. This is what their belief system was. Sadly, however, 
we need to acknowledge that even in our evangelical churches, in our Christian culture, this topic is extremely fuzzy and subjective. I mean, all you have to do is turn on Netflix and you'll see zombies, right? And, and, and vampires and orcs and goblins and so on and so forth. Um, Hollywood and history has fashioned and shaped our understanding of what these things look like. In fact, Tolkien probably has had a lot of influence on our view of what these things actually look like. But this idea of Satan being this, this, this ugly red creature with horns, sharp teeth, hoof feet, and, and an arrow-shaped tail and carrying a pitchfork, um, that actually came from the Middle Ages. Um, it was actually a caricature uh, drawn by them to mock him. Okay? This is the way they were mocking Satan. But in the mocking of him, it became the standard picture of him and now has become the, the kind of the picture of how our society or our culture, when they think of the devil, they think of it in these terms. So that is not who he looks like. That is not what he looks like. In fact, he's called an angel of light. He, you, you would actually expect him to look actually... A pretty, he'd be a handsome creature if you saw him, all right? So this is all a distortion. This is all made up by man, these views and understandings and pictures. Now, a, a more recent example, um, I'll go back to, chapter to, to, to the 1980s, because I think there was an influential book and author that came out. You may remember this if you were growing up during that time, but his name was Frank Peretti, and he had a book called Piercing the Darkness. And it was a it was a you know, nice story, good story, that kind of stuff. But the, the point of the story was that, that, that there were demons behind all these different things. So if you, if you were lying, um, it was actually a demon that was causing you to lie. Okay? And, and what ended up happening is that, that ended up promoting within the body of Christ this idea of what's called dominion theology. That the, the real purpose of our gathering, the real purpose of preaching was to cast out demons from people. Now, the problem with that kind of thinking, friends, is that man's greatest problem is not the fact that he's demon-possessed. Man's greatest problems, problem is that he is a sinful creature. Now, sinful creatures can be demon-possessed. But if you're a follower of Christ, you are no longer demon-possessed. And if you're a follower of Christ, you can't say that the reason you lied was because it was a demon in you. That's you saying, the devil made me do it. But the devil doesn't make you do it. And so what happens when you believe this kind of thinking is that it's, it's a shirking of responsibility. It's not that the devil made you do it. You chose to do it, but you're not willing to be humble and submissive to the truth of God to accept your responsibility for your actions. So there's, there's a lot of fuzziness. There's a lot of confusion within the body of Christ as a result of these historical things, a book like Frank Peretti's uh, book, Piercing the Darkness, uh, and as a result, people are just confused. They're, 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 they're really not aware of, of the activity of, of demons, and, and, and there's just a lot of um, fuzzy theology that is out there. Now, let me just give you a warning. Two extremes, right? Extreme number one, that we explain away demonic behavior in modern terms. For example, 
If you explain away what happens here with this unclean spirit, you could say, well, this, this guy really wasn't a, man with, you know, wasn't a man with an unclean spirit. It was, he just simply had Tourette syndrome. That's all. He just couldn't help speaking out in the way. They just back then were not sophisticated. They didn't understand what was going on. Element of truth. It's possible that there could be someone in a synagogue with Tourette syndrome, all right? But they just, they're speaking, however. But, but the text here is very, very clear. This is what it was. And Jesus is speaking, and he's saying, this is what you are. Okay? The other extreme is to view everything you can't comprehend as demonic. Now, one example of that, there was a, a pastor from, oh, he was big in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so he was older when the Internet came out. But his answer to the Internet was, um, the Internet is, is spooky, it's, it's evil, it's demonic. It's because he didn't understand it. He didn't comprehend it. Now, certainly, it can be an, 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 a vehicle for evil, but in and of itself, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that it's evil, doesn't mean that it's demonic. That's the other extreme. And we need to allow the Word of God to fashion and shape our understanding of the demonic world. Right? Now, it's just worth us walking through that. Here is Jesus now encountering this unclean spirit. Now, what did the unclean spirit say? Three things that this unclean spirit said. It's a threefold response. Number one, <clears throat> confrontation. Confrontation. When the demon said, uh, let's read it here, and he cried out, what have, you done, uh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now you might say, oh, the demon's recognizing who Jesus is and he's being submissive. That is not what's going on here. First of all, this confrontation. When he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This, this wasn't really a question. It was actually a common expression of conflict, of confrontation. A modern way of putting this would be, mind your own business. Or, what are you doing here? This has nothing to do with you. Secondly, there's defiance. Then he says, have you... Or have you, um, have, you have come to destroy us. This wasn't so much a question, but a defiant assertion. You have come to destroy us. This, this demon, this unclean spirit, um, knew that continued presence with Jesus would end up in his destruction. He wanted Jesus to leave. He was not willing to be submissive. And so, then the third thing is he comes on the attack. And what he says here is, is a, a method of attacking Jesus. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Understanding that the, the demon's not, he's not trying to say, all right, everyone, all right, I give up. This is Jesus. I just want you to know that. No, that's not what he's doing. He is attacking Jesus because he has knowledge that other people don't have. And this knowledge, there was a belief there that, that, that the knowledge over um, someone of their name was a means of power. And so he speaks and says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And he's trying now to bring Jesus into subjection to his attack. But Jesus will have none of it. Now, notice the two titles that he does give. Even in his rebellion against Jesus, he says, 
You're Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, second, the Holy One of God. They're fully aware of who Jesus is and his relationship to God, the Father, because later the demons will call him the Son of God, and then Jesus, the Son of the Most High, chapter 5, verse 7. But they're also aware of the fact that they are guilty and that their destruction is inevitable. Now, friends, here's something that's really important for us to understand. Here's the reality. It is very possible to recognize Jesus for who he really is and hate him all the more. It's possible to, re- to, to know who he is, who he really is, and to reject him and to fight against him and to oppose his followers as they seek to live for him. That's what these demons are doing. They know who he is, but they're not being submissive to him. Any submission you see in this text is submission because Jesus is forcing it on them. And that is why it's important for his disciples, including us, to know without a shadow of a doubt that whenever the authority of Christ, the Son of God, is invoked in preaching and teaching, there is a violent confrontation going on with the evil spirits who possess men's soul and rule their lives. There is a spiritual battle going on. And the word of God is confronting the the demons or the sin that's in the heart of that person who's an unbeliever. It's violent. And you might remember, maybe if you were an adult when you came to faith, just the wrestling match and the the things that happened in you and the battle that was going on. I'm not saying you were demon-possessed, but you certainly were a person that was full of sin, singular, collectively. And the word of God was coming and doing battle with your heart. It's this word that man desperately needs to find freedom from the bondage of the demonic world, to be released from their sinfulness, to to see Jesus for the beautiful Savior that he really is, to bring about conversion from death to life. So there's threefold response, confrontation, um, defiance, and then attacking. Now, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Imagine the scene. The man cries out in defiance of Jesus. There is a hush over the crowd. This is all happening in the synagogue, remember. So all these people are watching. And in their minds, the question brews, what will this teacher do now? I mean, just imagine if someone walked into our church today, interrupted and said, pointed their finger at me and said something and challenged me. You'd all be sitting there saying, well, what's Rod going to do now? course, after Ron would stand up and say, all right, you're not getting any closer and all this kind of stuff. You know, we have, we have things in place just in case something like that happens. But um, there'd be a hush and there'd be an expectation. People are listening. They're wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. Now, unlike the Jewish and pagan exorcists, men who claim to be able to cast out demons who use all sorts of incantations and spells... In today's world, it would be like the the American Indian, or if you went down to to South America, it would be the the, the kind of of person you would call maybe a a witch doctor or something like that, who are are kind of moving around, doing different things, and saying different things. Jesus isn't like that at all. All he does is speak. Notice what the text says. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. Literally, be muzzled. Stop 
your speaking. And then he says, and come out of him. He speaks with authority. He's demonstrating power over this unclean spirit, this unclean spirit that challenged him, that defied him, that attacked him. And Jesus just speaks. That's all he has to do. There's no dancing around. No conjuring. He just speaks. See, the power was not in the spell. It wasn't in the incantation. It was simply in Jesus alone. And Notice the demon cried out. (laughs) He caused convulsions. He shrieked with a loud voice. He came out of the man. This is what happens when Jesus speaks. It's no small thing. The man had been delivered and the demon is cast out. The demon was completely under the control of our sovereign Lord. Listen, no demon usurps the throne of God. And no demon acts independent of God's purposes. So if a demon is ever to encounter one of God's children and is somehow affecting one of God's children, friends, that is all under the watchful, careful eye of God. And not only that, for some reason he is not allowing it to happen, but he's a part of it happening for the purpose of growing that individual and furthering his kingdom. We can't necessarily understand all the intricacies of why, but we know that to be true because God doesn't treat his children in unloving, unkind ways, unnecessary ways. In other words, we go through trials, we go through suffering. That's not unkind. That's just part of being human. Jesus' is casting out of demons is an undeniable sign that the kingdom of God has come and Satan's realm has been routed. Hear this, Satan has been given the freedom to roam on the earth, but along comes Jesus now in his presence, establishing himself on this earth in his ministry, beginning the kingdom, and now he's confronting these demons. He already already dealt with Satan by by being tempted and didn't give in. And now he's confronting these demons and his kingdom now is spreading. You can get the picture there. There's something going on. Jesus, by his word, by his ministry, by his presence, is confronting the darkness. He is bringing light. So friends, it's time that in our minds we put God back on his throne. He is unshaken by disaster, by disease, by demonic activity, All of it submits to his authority. All of it. Anything you're experiencing, someone comes knocking on your door, you have a co-worker who's laughing and mocking at you, all of that is happening under the authority of Christ. He knows about it, he's aware about it, and he is accomplishing his purposes in it. And they might feel smug because they're mocking, but unless they come to faith in Christ they will not feel smug on that day because they will bow the knee to the one who is the authority, who is the king of kings, who is the Lord of lords. Now, how do the people respond? Again, this is no small event. This was just like a passing thing that happened. Everyone's sitting there. Everyone's watching. Everyone's listening. 
at least everyone that's in that particular place, right? Verse 27, and they were all amazed. I mean, they were slapped silly by what happened here. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I mean, just really two things that come out of that, right? How do they respond? Just amazement. Total, complete amazement. They're captivated by the authority of this teacher. The authority in his preaching and the authority of Jesus in his demonstration of power. Who is this? And then we're told about his fame. There's communication. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. There's communication here going on. His fame is, is spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. So the, the news was sent out on Twitter. The, the eyewitness accounts were reported on Facebook Live. Well, of their day. Really, of their day. This is what's going on. The, the news spread. Now, one of the things that's really important for us to understand is that part of the reason Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee is that Galilee was a strategic place. Galilee was in the northern part of Israel, still is, you can go there. And back in Christ's day, Galilee was the place that everyone had to go through. If they were going north, if they were going south, if they were going east, they were going west. On the western side, yes, you had the coastline, but you also, the coastline was, was riddled with marshland. So what people would do is they would walk inland and they would come to Galilee. So Galilee was this place where all sorts of people were coming from. And you'll find that a little bit later on as Jesus is speaking, there's people from Edomia, people from Tyre and Sidon and all over the place. They're, they're there hearing what Jesus has to say. Why? Because it's Galilee. It's Grand Central Station for Israel. So when this happens in Capernaum, it's no surprise now. The news goes spreading out. And the region now has become aware of who this person is. Did you hear what he did in the synagogue? Did you hear how he preached? Did you hear what he did with this one who was possessed by a demon? It's not surprising that crowds began to seek him out. And we'll see that unfolding. The news begins to spread. He becomes famous in a right sense. Now notice who the audience is in this text. First of all, you have the demons. They get an up-close understanding of what they know to be true. Jesus is this, this one that they called specifically here, the Holy One of God. They know that. They've experienced that. They've been dealt a blow by him. Then, of course, you have the crowds. And they all see and hear Jesus' authority and are amazed or blown away, yet they still don't believe. They, they see him as, a, as this incredible person, but they're not believing in the fact that he is the Messiah yet. 
that Matthew's gospel records a scathing judgment of Christ. Matthew 11, 23 and 24 says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That's no small statement. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Friends, the sensational isn't always the real. And sensationalism and mysticism breeds more sensationalism and more mysticism. And Jesus is not, has not come to, to bring sensationalism. The, the, the whole point of all this is to, is to demonstrate his authority and his power so that the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God would be able to be received by those who are the audience. All right, there's also the disciples. There's four of them at this point who are beginning to know who Jesus is. <laughs> I mean, they've just been called by him, and now they find themselves in a, in a synagogue. It's like, whoa, okay, I think we need to talk. <laughs> uh, what's going on here? I, this is amazing. Who is this guy who called us to be his disciples? So, his heart, his passion, his preaching, and his power, all that is embodied in this passage, and they see it on display, and they're learning. And of course, we are, uh, we are the audience. In God's divine plan, he has recorded this text with our reading and examination in mind. Let's not forget that. Do we know who Jesus really is? And if you know who Jesus really is, is your whole life a testimony to the authority of Christ? Do you live your life in a way that you are speaking his word authoritatively? Do you live with conviction? And the, 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 the Great Commission says this, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's saying, the authority that I have is now being handed to you. Now, we are not Jesus. We don't speak apart from the Word of God with authority. We simply speak the Word of God, which is the authority powered by the Holy Spirit, and it affects, changes the hearts of people. But his authority is resting on his church, and friends, that is us. He is with us. His authority is present with us. Now, I, I want to challenge you as we bring things to kind of a close um, just to answer one question, and I'm going to walk through something here to answer this question. The question is this, are you still amazed? My assumption is that, that you're a follower of Christ. And if you're not, I just want to appeal to you, do not miss the beautiful display of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in this text. Do not miss the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, went to a cross purposely, deliberately to die in your place so that your sins could be forgiven, you could be reconciled to God, and you could have the hope of living with him in eternity one day, but a personal relationship now. But the question is, are you still amazed? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Do you believe it? That's one of the most famous songs in the English speaking world. Do you believe it? And are you still amazed by it? Right, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. Are you amazed that you were once lost, but, but because of Christ you're now found? That you were once blind, but now because of Christ you see? Does that still amaze you? Or is it kind of like old hat? When you sing this song, do you sing it understanding the beauty and the amazement of it? Here's another song that we sing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Do you believe that? And are you amazed by it? Jesus is calling for all who hear to turn to him in humble repentance and belief. To believe that, that he is the son of God. To embrace his, his suffering sacrifice on the cross and to rest in his saving grace. We're going to close with a song but I, I, uh, and, and the Lord's Supper. But I want to walk through the song with you so that we're not just singing it. You know the song. But I want to walk through this rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. What's the double cure? Safe from wrath and made me pure. We continue on in there. All the labors of my hands could not meet the law's demands. Nothing you could do. And my zeal, no, no, no respite, no. I can't get any rest if I'm just working, 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 trying to please God. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. None of that could atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. Nothing, come on, help me out here. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Why? Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Helpless look to thee for grace. To thy fountain, Lord, I fly. I mean, just like, oh, I'm just, I'm flying at you as fast as I can. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The last one. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, 
see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Do you believe it? Are you amazed? Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that shows us in such a vivid way that you are not just a man, but you are the Son of God. And that as you preach, you preach with authority. Your words reflected the truth already revealed, but explained it, pressed it home powerfully, purposefully. But Lord, you also demonstrated your power in particular over the demonic world. And Lord, we are in awe, we're amazed at your power on display through the word and through um, this, this demonstration of power with the, the, the demonic world, Lord. And we, we thank you that even though those things may be real, that the demonic activity can still be present. And we, we don't want to shy away from the reality of that, but we, Lord, recognize that, that we, because of your children, have you as our God exercising authority. So we don't need to worry. We don't need to, to, to be panicked we need to find ourselves resting in the cleft of the rock, which is you. Lord, we believe these things. And I trust, Lord, that we are amazed, afresh and anew today. Help us now, as we celebrate the Lord's table, to believe what it represents but also be amazed by what it represents. Your willful, purposeful giving of your body, shedding of your blood as the sacrifice once for all for us, sinful, undeserving people, though we are objects of your grace. May we be amazed afresh, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen.